Ready for another episode of Wanderings and Wool Gathering? Good, here's Foggy. Welcome to Wanderings and Wool Gathering, episode 58. Proudly hosted by North Central Indiana's Rock 98.5. Tonight, we begin the episode with a heavy heart. Metalhead Mundy is not here this evening. His family has been struck by tragedy this week. He lost both his father and his father-in-law within days of each other. Our hearts tonight go out to our brother and his family in this terribly difficult time. So before we begin the show tonight, we would like to take a moment of silence for Jeremy and his family. Thank you, boys. Thank you. I am your host, Foggy, and with me as always, JPP. Good evening. How's it going? I uh, wanted to take a moment to, you know, send my condolences to Metalhead Mundy and family as well. I, I've been friends with him for a very long time. We met briefly in kindergarten, and um, on another day, I'll share the story of the first day I met him. Uh, he doesn't remember it; he claims, but I remember it vividly. But uh, nonetheless, his family invited me with open arms, and um, his dad went to high school with my dad, and I remember them hanging out when we hung out when there was uh, large gatherings usually at a show or something and and Les would come out with with Jeremy and so those two would be catching up in the corner while we were playing a show or doing our thing so um you know he's definitely a, a big piece of uh, my life in that regard and and he will certainly be missed and I know his uh, father-in-law was a a stand-up individual as well I didn't know him super well but nonetheless you know getting hit that hard I, I can't imagine so our hearts are with you buddy and joining us this evening is L. Ray, Joe Rife. Hello there. Good evening. I had a connection to uh, Les as well. And it's funny how things all come together. Got in, invited to join the show just a few weeks ago and reconnect with you guys. And uh, then, you know, here we are. And I, I mentioned uh, uh, Jeremy's dad and my dad knew each other from the 80s. I believe the Spring Factory, Kokomo Spring. And my dad would always come home with these stories. He had a cast of characters of all the guys that he worked with. And, you know, factory life, there was plenty of stories to come out of that place. But um, when I found out, I texted my dad right away and he said that he hated to hear it. And uh, basically what everybody else is saying, that Les was a good dude. And and uh, anytime you lose your your dad, it's tough. So thoughts are with you, Jeremy and, and family. And sorry about your father-in-law. didn't know him, but um, that's a lot to take on all at once. So we're with you, bud. And um, thinking of you and looking forward to having a good conversation tonight and uh talking about some good music as well so yep looking forward to having you back when you're ready too so mm, doors are open right on yeah and you kind of hate sometimes to go on in times like this but jeremy in no way would ever want us to not continue on as the rest of us would <clears throat> Um, the show must go on, as they say, and we will do our best tonight to make Mr. Metalhead proud. And um, that will lead us to the challenge inspired by the great Lester Bangs. Are you gentlemen ready? Ready as I can be. I didn't stop. I don't believe there's any way to prepare, so sure. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm serving up an easy one. We'll see. I gave uh, Joe a hint earlier. He's, he's going to have the lead on you. Oh, man. Don't I'll hold back. It was a fake hint, Paul. Don't worry. 
Oh, it was a ruse. <laughs> yeah. It was a red herring. It was a herring. <laughs> just grade with a curve. That's all I have. All right. I just pieced together a couple pieces. If you don't get it from the first part, which I think you will, then you will get it. I have a clue to add that I think will do it. So here we go. It's easy to criticize what you don't understand, and this band is usually dismissed as a headbanger's genesis. On this particular record that the guy is talking about, these guys appropriate the crippling riffs and sonic blast of heavy metal, model their torturous instrumental changes on Yes-style British art rock, and fuse the two together with lyrics that are still several refreshing steps above the moronic machismo and half-baked mysticism of many hard rock airs. The author here says, speaking of one song in particular, it's a trump card, a frantic, time-changing romp. Not only is the sentiment right on, but the tune is packed with insistent hooks, including a playful reggae break that suddenly explodes into a Led Zeppelin-like bash. The lead guitarist makes the most of these hooks with harmonious inversions and aggressive solo breaks, taking off in this song, and this song with a theatrical agility that would give Jimmy Page pause for thought. I saw you both smile. Who do you think? <laughs> that was a nice effort. <laughs> yeah. Definitely so, a regular break. So what part gave it away? For me, well... Of course, the lyrics and whatnot, but in the reggae break, yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I didn't have it at, uh, what was it, Headbangers Genesis, but. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was interesting that they came up with that. Right. I don't, I don't really, I've never seen anybody headbang to Rush Tunes, honestly, but I could be all wet. Yeah, I don't know. But <laughs> I thought that was perfect because that was about permanent waves. Awesome. So um, the clue was. This group's problem has rarely been competence, however. They simply don't play fashionable music. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, I thought that was good on a bunch of levels. Yep. Somebody thinks it's fashionable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I mean, and I don't say this in a bad way. I mean, Foggy, you're kind of an outlier in that most people I know that love Rush are diehard musicians who have studied hard for years and woodshed in Getty or Alex's or even Neil's riffs and parts. But, um, you know, a lot of times when I'm at music events that kind of cater to the music instrument industry, there's always, you know, probably at least four dozen guys with rush shirts in the <laughs> equation. You know what I mean? Cause that's yeah. kind of the demographic. That's what, you know, the, the model citizen for many rock musicians, but, uh, um, you know, to say that it's not, you know, digestible and that kind of thing from the, the pop realm. I, I can see where, where they're getting at because they definitely don't write four, four simple hooks, but damn, is it good? Well, I knew you'd get it. I should have, I should have gone harder. Darn it. <laughs> I went appropriate. You know, if you would have gone, you know, with one of the albums later that uh, may not have had the momentum of permanent waves and 2112 and things like that, that probably would have stumped me. Yeah, maybe, maybe. <laughs> um, but I went for that since that's what we're doing tonight. Sounds good. We're going to take a brief break before we get into the actual album because we do have a challenge to play. And next week there will not be a Lester Bangs challenge because we have a guest in the studio with us. So we're going to forgo that challenge and then uh, we'll pick that up again um, in two weeks. Sound good?
Sounds good. Yep. Awesome. It's Mr. Mundy picked the challenge for this week, which was to come up with some songs that crack us up or some funny songs. We were not allowed to use the Nickelback catalog. And um, he said the reason was because we all need a little lift right now, a little levity. And boy, was he prophetic. And oh, um, so we will, we will go ahead and play the challenge, even though he is not with us this evening, simply because the next week is packed and possibly the week or two after that as well. So we're going to go ahead and play it. Funny songs. Joe, what's one that you came up with? I'll do my radio hit first. Uh, I had to go with Lunch Lady Land by Adam Sandler. Oh. All-time classic. Mm-hmm. That it is. And the great thing about Sandler's comedy is that it's quotable and repeatable. And Lunch Lady Land mm-hmm. has that very thing. So that's why I love that one. I know. I had to go talk about... Uh, you know, picking from the Nickelback catalog. That one I know is just top shelf, but I had to take it. So first round, Lunch Lady right. Land. <laughs> well, what's funny is that brings up a Monday story. Um, when <laughs> They're all going to laugh at you first came out. I can't remember if it was me or if it was him that bought the cassette at Karma. But one of us had it and he had this little red Chevette and a nice little cassette player and decent subs in that little thing too. It was like this little tiny, you know, wagon that, uh, bumped out some bass every once in a while but we were listening to that cassette and he was taking me back home we got to the longest p and i thought he was going to fall off the road we were laughing so hard <laughs> so that that album is definitely holds a special place in my heart for the comedy value and uh especially that moment because we didn't know what we were in for and we were just rolling yeah uh i'll just follow up then because if we just follow along that line the Andy Samberg and Justin Timberlake group of songs, mm-hmm. uh, Dick in a Box and some of the other ones, when they talk about drinking Alizé or wine coolers and those kind of things, <laughs> I mean, those two together are comedy gold. So any of those I would listen to anytime they came on. <laughs> so that's that's your first one, that whole catalog? Yep. I cheated. I tell you. Tony's not here. Somebody has to do it. That's right. I, I'll allow it. That's great. <clears throat> My first choice is something I mentioned on a previous episode a while back. Gosh, it was last year at some point, and I've napped since then and uh, was actually allowed in public and not because of any of my wrongdoings. Let's just get that straight. But you may remember, Foggy, I brought up a, a song from a, a man by the name of Jimmy Castor. It was called The Bertha Butt Boogie. Bertha Butt Boogie. I don't remember. We, you listened to it, but yeah, he was talking about it. her name was Bertha, yes! Bertha but, the Butt Sisters and all that yep. kind of stuff. Yep. So that song, <laughs> oh, I was really little when my parents were playing a 45 and, and uh, you know, <clears throat> giggling like a, a five-year-old would. And at, anytime I think of that song, I still laugh. Anytime you mention butts when you're a kid, I mean, that's that's hilarity. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. uh, round two, Mr. Wright. Round two uh, is a tune that I using my classroom a lot on Fridays if I'm doing some like goofy YouTube stuff or something. Um, there's this rapper that's out of Michigan called Froggy Fresh. Oh, yes. <laughs> and uh, used to be Krispy Kreme. Then I think some trademark difficulty made him switch to Froggy Fresh and his buddy. Moneymaker Mike, if you're not familiar with, with this guy, he's probably, I don't know, five six, um, fairly cut. And then he hangs out with this dude, Moneymaker Mike, that kind of looks like Napoleon Dynamite, I would suppose. It'd be a good comparison. <laughs> Uh, but the song is dunked on. The kids oh, always love it. Gold. Um, again, quotable. Uh, you almost have to pull it up on YouTube and watch it because the audio just doesn't do it justice because it's a whole story about 
playing basketball in the driveway with kind of the neighborhood bully and he gets dunked on and the game goes back and forth and the guy's crying and oh, it's it's comedy gold but it's actually a pretty good rap tune as well I, it is he's pretty solid rapper so i think my favorite part is well parts when the girlfriend and the mom are doing the, the chorus <laughs> why is james crying he just got dunked on and just the way they lip synced it and you can just uh-huh. like see the mom's face like why the hell is he crying why is he yeah. dunked on man yeah like, yeah, deal with it. <laughs> it's uh, you have to picture uh, this video is shot on like a cul-de-sac or like just in a neighborhood, mm-hmm. and they're just playing on a blacktop driveway in some one of their friends' yards. You know, in one of their driveways. Um, we always look. My daughter and I like to watch it. Um, there's an old lady. <laughs> like doing yard work or something in the background <laughs> and there's a part that i always know okay it's time to start looking maggie start looking for the old lady and she's like shutting her garage door and stuff <laughs> so the rest of the world's oblivious i don't know how many views this thing has on youtube but it's a favorite i took it into the classroom the kids like it too and it's 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 just good clean basketball fun so i'm gonna have to listen to it after we get done with yeah. the episode so 22 Sorry, well. 22 million <laughs> views yeah share the link our, I have uh, at least six million of those, I think. So <laughs> it's like class periods. <laughs> You're very and busy at school. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And and uh, fans or listeners who haven't become fans yet, uh, look for the trophy. It's dynamite. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Lots of Easter eggs in that video. A lot yes. of fun stuff. <laughs> oh, great, great choice. I, I fully approve. All right. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to my childhood, as JPP did, and I'm gonna throw in there Ray Stevens. The streak. Oh, man. Because that is utterly hilarious. <laughs> I haven't watched it in a few years. I don't know if I'd still laugh, but man, when I was a kid, that was solid gold. That was good stuff. You know, I haven't heard a ton of Ray Stevens. Um, I've heard more than not, considering the infomercial that would come on in the middle of the day. And you'd see <laughs> yeah. the, kind of the KTL record compilation and mm-hmm. him acting goofy. That's how I remember him quite a bit. Yeah, I love the interview style in that song. about the people who'd seen the streak right (laughs) yeah that's good ray stevens had an interesting career because he would do all these goofy songs like the streak and the score revival and and then he tried to get serious there for a minute right and do like uh, what was that song everything is beautiful or whatever Mm -hmm. try to make this kind of feel good anthem and and everybody was like, "Here, Ray Stevens, knock that off!" Like, give me the back. streak too. Yeah. <laughs> More naked people running around, please, please. <laughs> nice. All right, my second choice comes from a friend of mine, and also a friend of Mundy's. He's uh, six foot something. Uh, his name is Jeff, and my mom hated it when he came over to the house because he was so tall that uh, she said, I forgot to dust the top of the fridge. You'll see, I have it cleaned up there. Don't let him in. But uh, anyway, he was just a tall dude. And he had a stack of vinyl at his house one time. And while we were there listening to various oldies that his parents had, his, his he was the youngest. And there was a good, I don't know, 15-year span between him and the next youngest sibling. So the catalog went way back. But in that uh, catalog of vinyl was a Star Trek disco album. And I don't necessarily have one tune that stood out by name, but I remember there was, you know, the disco beat and the boo and all that kind of stuff. And there was this robot voice talking about Captain Kirk and Spock and all the characters. And it wrote a little story. And while it's not necessarily, you know, a comedy album, it was certainly a disco take on, on a popular phenomenon that hit. And it just 
tickled me to death because I was completely blindsided and taken by surprise by it. Was this a convergence of the two styles? Was this disco and Star Trek like becoming popular at the same time and they tried to capitalize on it? Or what was the purpose of this album, I wonder? That's a good question. I I don't know. The I think disco came out a little bit later, but I think because it had such a, a cult phenomena and fan base already that somebody thought, hey, you know, there are Star Trek fans out there and disco's booming, so why don't we put the two together? <laughs> there is actually a local band um, that plays a lot of conventions called five year mission goes back to you know the original star trek series and they'll play episodes in the background while they write and play songs about that particular episode um you know so it's a full gimmick but it works they're all dressed in the outfits there's you know a guy in the red suit you name it it's pretty wild and i think they have a, a song about the tribbles if i'm not mistaken too oh, of course so who was the original that did that album because i have a disco Star Wars vinyl by Miko. I think Miko, now that you say that, that does sound familiar. Because um, when I was searching for it, I remember seeing that, but I don't know if that was the same one. It's been. Yeah, I think it's right over there, actually, somewhere in my Star Wars crap. So <laughs> nice. Wait, it's... you said Star Wars and crap in the same sentence. You get out of here. <laughs> well, that's a lot. But anyway, <laughs> once you get more than a few, once you get a couple hundred thousand comic books, it's like crap. So. Oh, what, is it all like the prequel stuff? Is that what you're talking about? Is that the crap? I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't know if I am. Well, I do on the movies. <laughs> I do on the movies. So. <laughs> Sorry, I went nerdy. And, and I don't hate them. So No. <clears throat> all right, round three. Yeah, for sure. That's, I can't get into downing my childhood. So anyway. <laughs> <laughs> JPP got a third. Uh, actually, it's Joe's turn, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it is Joe. We can do super serpentine. I don't care. I'll, I'll or I'll go. Um, I so my first two were kind of intentionally funny or meant to be funny songs, and I don't know if the third one is, but it always makes me laugh. And it's a song by Johnny Cash called Oni. Now Cash wrote a lot of funny songs. Cash wrote a lot of songs that were inspired by real people, real life. He teamed up with Shel Silverstein. I mean, he was kind of a funny songwriter at times, and. Uh, the reason this song makes me laugh is because it's uh, it's about a guy who works at a factory and he has a guy that's always standing over him and looking down his neck and really hassling him. And so um, in Johnny Cash's way of telling a story, he he goes through his career and he says that he gets to retirement day and he talks about how he's going to get a, a little gold watch and they're going to throw a big party for him and everything like that. The The flip side of this is he's been getting sick of this boss. In the last couple of verses, he talks about how the boss has just been standing around getting soft and he's been working to build muscles. So he's had this plan for like 25 years that he's going to he's going to jack the su supervisor that's given him hell for all his time working. And in the last verse, he says, when I'm gone, I'll be remembered as a working man who put his point across with a right handful of knuckles because today I show old Oni who's the boss. <laughs> and as the as the music fades out, he goes, what time is it? 4.30. Hey, Oni, Oni. And he starts, he does this like evil cackle and the music fades <laughs> and that's it. I love that song. And and I know it's coming, so I'm, always, I'm already smiling, but alas, first I'm, I'm in a full-blown uh, chuckle. So only by Johnny Cash, number three. I would laugh even more if he said muscles. <laughs> <laughs> a fistful of knuckle. I love it. 
Okay, so I was going to go with Lazy Sunday, but I'm not because we brought up Star Wars. So, <laughs> so I'm going to go with Weird Al doing The Saga Begins. And mm. here's why. <laughs> this is so stupid and embarrassing. But um, so <laughs> when the, uh, the prequel started, the Star Wars celebration was in Indianapolis. So they, they held it there. It was Crossroads of America. It was before they moved it. And uh, Tyler and I, uh, the mayor of Kokomo, prior to becoming the mayor, clearly, um, we got we worked the convention so we could get in and, and meet people and do all that. Well, anyway, so they had this big opening night, and some of the lower-tier actors from the movie came out and sang this Weird Al song. Oh, nice. That place was packed. And everybody act like they were seeing <laughs> some kind of show, you know? And looking back, it's like, oh, my gosh, we were like fanboys cheering. And <laughs> so I think we were actually the funny part of that song looking back now. But um, it's still not too bad altogether. So, so that's my third choice. You you all are like the, the SNL cast when Shatner was on. And yes. like, get a life. You're losers. <laughs> what was the locker combination? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I remember John Lovitz dressed as Spock. I bet you've never kissed a girl. Sinks his head in shame. <laughs> oh, man, classic. Now, you know, it was we worked the photo booth, so we got to walk the the, the people back, you know, mm -hmm. and set them down and then kind of work the lines and all that. So we did get to meet quite a few of the people, and uh, it was fun. It was totally worth it. We got in early. and That's cool. Uh, but, yeah, it's just funny to see grown people, you know, th these actors who are bc list people singing this cheesy weird owl song with just had everybody eating out of their hands <laughs> right it was, it was great hey when a shtick works folks it works merchandising merchandising <laughs> you know it's funny because i actually chose a weird owl tune as well so i will go with that and then i'm gonna flip with a runner up that's also uh because you said lazy sunday you know snl based i have a runner up that's snl based too but um I chose I Lost on Jeopardy by Weird Al. Yeah. <laughs> Absolute classic. And because mm -hmm. I remember when I first heard it, what's funny is, um, I can't, what, and I'm drawing a blank right now, the name of the original song. Um, it was Greg Ken, right? Yes. Because yeah. um, um, I heard those tunes around the same time frame, and I thought, man, did he rewrite the words and re-record it? And then... Conspiracy. You know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Gosh, I remember what the name of that song is. We'll look. Our loves in jeopardy. What's that? Our loves in jeopardy. Is that what it was? Uh, no, I lost on jeopardy. But our I think it was just called jeopardy. jeopardy. Yeah, I love our loves in jeopardy. Yeah. Um, so I didn't know Weird Al at that time, but then shortly thereafter, for Christmas, my sister got me the N three D album, and I was like, Oh, I hear that voice. I I get it now. He makes he makes fun of other people's songs, <laughs> and so that began my my journey of enjoying Weird Al Yankovic and. Um, he actually played here in Indy a few years ago. A buddy of mine went to the show and he said, same road crew he's had for years, same band. And he said it was rock solid performance. He said the set changes, the costume changes in between. He's like, you know, he's been at it for a long time. And the fact that he remains efficient between each tune is still incredible. And, and, you know, it's very high energy and a good time. So maybe one day when people are allowed to get out of the house again, we can go see a Weird Al show. I heard um, he is nothing but professional and a total stand-up guy. Mm -hmm. Just a wonderful person. I, I've heard that too, and mm -hmm. that's uh, certainly you know something to, that 
lends as a testament why somebody has a career for so long, you know, and that's, that's awesome. And it, the fact that you hear, you know, he doesn't just go and write a song and, and release it. He asks for that artist's permission and goes through a, a rigorous process of, you know, getting their blessing before proceeding, which says a lot too. There's a lot of integrity yeah. involved, but my runner up, you know, you said, you know, you, you were going to do lazy Sunday. I don't know if you, you mentioned Andy Sandberg, but there's an SNL sketch where he talks about, it's called great day. And, um, he basically is running around. It's going to be a great day. And he's, you know, snorting Coke and he's lost his wife and all this kind of stuff. And uh, it's like, have you talked to your wife and your kids? Nope. Okay. You know, it's, it's completely dreary subject matter, but he's just still smiling and going throughout the day and he's just falling apart. And you got to watch the video with it because that's what sells you on, on the hilarity of the, of the entire thing. <laughs> Lay off me, man. And all sorts of just crazy little, you know, episodes throughout the whole thing. So um, I will go with that as my runner up because it's worth watching. Yeah. I, I think the Saturday Night Live songs are probably the best part of the show. Mm -hmm. um, and they have, they have in the last couple of years, they've started using the girls to do songs like the, the Christmas candle mm -hmm. uh, that they all pass around, or they did one about mom jeans. Um, no, yeah, they're hysterical. I love, I think that's where I, SNL really shines is when they give some creators, you know, the kind of leeway to make their own music and put it on there because it's, it's pretty good. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. <clears throat> I realized when I was going through these funny songs that I had a weird Al song on my list too, and it came off the, off the deep end album. Mm -hmm. And I, and I realized how much I, that came out in like 92 and I realized that I listen to that just as much as I listen to some of my other albums. Because sometimes you can get a Weird Al or you can get an Adam Sandler. You can get one of these comedy albums for the the joke song that you know. And you kind of stick to that. And maybe you don't venture too far out. But Off the Deep End was kind of a pivotal, like, it was a crucial album back then. And and when you when you talk about Weird Al, I, I, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Nirvana first maybe gave the blessing for smells like teen spirit and then kind of like backtracked or maybe that's flip flop one of the two, but I feel like maybe Kurt Cobain was like, I don't want you to do this or I don't get it or it's not funny, but we'll let you do it. And so he always gets interesting stories when he goes to seek out permission from these people. And some people, it's like a badge of honor to be covered by yeah. Weird Al or parodied by Weird Al. Yeah. Um, and other times they're kind of like, eh, okay, whatever. Um, but I think Kurt Cobain finally kind of, got with the program and said it was funny, but it was funny. There's a song on the marbles. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's like a shot for shot remake of the video as well, which is something else yep. that weird. Al does really well. Yep. Um, Polka your eyes out on that album is just a mashup of uh, a bunch of popular songs at the time. Yeah. And uh, that would have been my runner up pick. And I wanted to get a weird Al album or song on there as well, since, we should have really just done our funny songs plus our weird Al tune. That should have been the list. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Poke, poke your eyes out with some great musicianship. I've never thought I'd say that about a polka tune, but uh, let's face it. He, those guys are solid. I also loved Trigger Happy quite a bit and Taco mm -hmm. Grande from that album. Yeah. Trigger Happy was that kind of surf. Yeah. It was 50s the, uh, number. <laughs> yeah. It was uh, Beach Boys, Jan and Dean tune. Yeah. 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 So. You know, he took it back old school a little bit, and uh, I think he even did a new kids tune on that album, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, the white stuff. Yep. Yes. Not Oreo cookies. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, fantastic. Well, that was fun. Thank you, Metalhead, for giving us some uh, poops and giggles tonight. 
We're not going to be issuing a challenge for next week. We're just not going to do it. You can't make me. No. Challenge accepted. Challenge. <laughs> I, can, I can do those challenges. Challenge <laughs> retracted. <laughs> right. Yeah, we will probably come up with a very simple challenge that we'll alert our guests to before the show. Because last time they did play along. And um, I think people like the challenge. It's fun. We'll probably do a live challenge. Uh, that way we don't have to do a lot of work ahead of time with Michael and expect him to do anything because um, he's a very busy man. But um, we'll have something for you. We're just not going to do a huge challenge because we wanted to save as much time as possible to talk to Mr. Saravolo and hopefully his wife too. She's on. So please come back next week and listen to that. And now we have important business to take care of, gentlemen. Yes, we do. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. I want you to do the rest of the show in that voice. Okay. <laughs> can, can you make my voice do that? I'm afraid I cannot. <laughs> I'm going to have to buy one of those. You do it I won't sound all whiny all the time. That does not compute. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Hawking, I had a question about... Uh... Calculate the vector quantities as they approach infinity. <laughs> Uh, it's kind of appropriate for our talk tonight, actually. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> um, so anyway, tonight we are going to be talking about Permanent Waves, the 40th anniversary of the original release. Permanent Waves is the seventh studio album from Rush. And fun fact, maybe not so <clears throat> fun, but interesting. You want to talk about being prolific? They put out nine albums in their first eight years. That is insane. I mean, people now take three, four, or five years between records, and they put nine. They had eleven in their first eleven years together. I mean, well, obviously Neil wasn't on the first one, but still, that is some impressive work. Mm -hmm. And it's not like it's shoddy work or simple chords, and you know, there's a lot of complexity to the music. And you know, they toured all the time, but they managed to keep kicking out music. And uh, I, don't, you'll, I don't know that you'll ever see that kind of prolific songwriting again. Can somebody remind Tool of this accomplishment? <laughs> They're the reverse. They're the anti-Rush, even though they're both prog rock. Right. Uh, maybe if uh, they're going to take so long, maybe Danny Carey could come over and help Rush do some kind of a reunion type tour. One could hope. I did He's, see where they mentioned they were going to work on a new album during quarantine. I was like, please, I don't want to have quarantine for another nine years. <laughs> <laughs> Danny Carey's like one of the few people that I would say, yes, I would let him sit in with Rush to do a show. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah that's, that's funny, actually. I'm sorry. No, yo. I had that question. If you were to have somebody sit on the drums... Who would you even choose? Because stylistically, those are big shoes to fill. Yeah. Well, and he did right after Neil passed. I think the next concert they did, he played the rhythm method in concert. And it was freaking fantastic. He is so good. So maybe Mike Portnoy or somebody, maybe too. I don't know. Mm -hmm. There's some fantastic drummers out there. It's not like they couldn't find somebody if they really wanted to do some kind of a tour, I just don't think they probably ever will care to without Neil. And that's fine. Mm -hmm. I'm just being selfish when I say it. <laughs> I like to see something come around. That's all. Hey, you know, as a fan, you're rabid. And what, what do you, what can you do? But, you know, at the same time, they've had a long legacy with that guy. And you know, if uh, him being at rest puts it to rest, I respect that as well. 
Absolutely. And but I wouldn't if if Getty and Alex would want to continue. And I, I've heard Alex has terrible arthritis. I'm not sure he can play the way he used to, but if he can and if they wanted to make music, I would be all for. You know, Getty's done some single music, you know, on his own and it wasn't bad. I didn't mm-hmm. love it like I do Rush, but it wasn't bad. So if they wanted to continue making music, I'm all for it and I would listen. I think all right. Let's talk about this record. Okay. What are y'all thinking? Well, I'm thinking I'm humbled in the fact that it's the 40th anniversary and um, I was about three and a half years old when this came out. <laughs> I was nine. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Sorry. But no, um, I went through and listened to this. I had it playing in, in um, the background while I was working and then I went back and listened to it today and I even went and listened to the original release on streaming and it's kind of tough to make a comparison you know from like my old cassette or my old cd or anything like that because i didn't have that handy but this album especially right out of the gate i like i went and listened to free will and i listened to the original free will and it seemed like the the i don't know if it's the digital copy that was mastered for uh, iTunes and things like that, but it was louder than than this. Um, just that was just a subtle notice, and maybe this is going back to more of the authentic approach to when it was released initially. I, I again, I didn't have a physical copy to to validate either way, but I, that just kind of took me by surprise right out the gate because I know a lot of times there's a lot of loudness wars going on with popular music and stuff and of course this is being more of a classic wouldn't fall into that category nonetheless but things were probably a little little cleaner a little tighter in in the masters and it was great to revisit this for sure gotcha so you're you're thinking maybe there was a little different uh, mixing levels or something going on maybe yeah um i'm just kind of curious and i I didn't do any reading to it so i'm maybe coming off completely way off base but um it definitely had more of a authentic sound to when it would have been released to me and that it was quieter um, than the digital stream on Spotify from the, what, what it labeled as the 79 release. Yeah. I think the last one I listened to was it, it had been remastered since it was originally released. And then, you know, prior to this one. So I think I had listened to that remastered one Mm. way more times, you know, since then, just because it's so convenient to throw it on. Gotcha. And that it didn't label it as remastered. So maybe that was the version I was listening to. And if they were kind of sprucing it up for streaming and earbuds and things like that, they probably mm-hmm. did boost it a little. Would make complete sense. What did you think, El Ray? <clears throat> well, the original is what, six songs? Then the remastered, you get uh, another handful 12. of live tracks. Yeah. So 35 minutes um, goes down pretty easily. You know, it's it's a it's just a easy to listen to album. Um, you can you can you can do both. You can throw it on in the background, like Paul said, or you can really sit down and dig into it. Because Rush writes a novel with every song. I feel they just uh, musically and lyrically. I know I say that a lot, but it's like it's true. When you really dig in, even the radio tunes are are really none of them are just fluff. You know, that's that's what I really appreciated about this album was that you can you can expend as much effort as you want into it and uh when you put a little bit more into it man it just the the whole album just really blossoms i I just i like all six tunes on the original and then the live was just it had to be a treat for you steve it had to be 
cool to have that. Have you heard the tracks like this or do they, you know, is there a catalog of live stuff that you, that they've released? Or, or, oh yeah. They have tons of live albums. Mm -hmm. um, but still every new one is, is something different and exciting. And when they're packaged differently, I know I've talked, I don't know if you've heard, but, you know, we've talked in the show before I'm an album listener. I don't mm -hmm. do playlists necessarily. I don't pick songs here and there. I listen to whole albums. So for me, this was just a different experience because of the different collections of songs and, you know, when they were recorded, where they were recorded and all that. So it was a totally different experience for me and it was fresh and I totally loved it. You know, I guess the interesting thing about this album and everybody knows, you know, this was the one, this was kind of like the turning point from doing all of the, the thematic albums with the long songs. And this one had some radio hits. They didn't really have a lot of what you would call radio friendly hits in the past. And I think the biggest thing for me is that Neil over the course of these albums continued to become a better songwriter and lyric writer. And it's, it's no, you know, nothing hidden about it, but Getty has said in the past that singing some of those songs like Cygnus book one and two was terribly difficult. I mean, the lyrics are not, <laughs> you know, simple to sing. It's kind of like George Lucas writing those those words, you know, and they, they, you can't speak them. You can write them, George, but you can't speak them, you know. And I think mm -hmm. Getty had that same kind of experience with some of those lyrics. But I think as Neil went on, he became a much better songwriter. And I think he was more concise and he could get those messages across in shorter songs. Like these are all shorter. Obviously, there was only one song on this one i think over six minutes is that right jacob's ladder natural science was oh yeah well how long was jacob's ladder uh natural science okay yeah natural science is nine i think something like that so there's only i guess those two that kind of approach the length of some of those old school stuff they had but i don't know i, I think the progression here is really good in neil's songwriting mm-hmm yeah, and Spirit of the Radio, Spirit, the Spirit of Radio, if I can talk, is certainly radio friendly. It's got the nice little lead hook, kind of like uh, I would compare if you were to take a, a rock song that's got a hook that people recognized in, the, in its time, like Thunderstruck, you know, the little lead at the beginning and things like that. And it, it's uh, noodly, but looping and repeating. And that definitely catches ears right out the gate. And Neil and, and Getty are still doing some crazy prog like do 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 and little passages as that intro builds up but then it turns into a rock tune and kind of goes straight ahead for sure but nonetheless <clears throat> excuse me i don't have the full catalog experience say like from progressive order like you do and that you've listened to it repeatedly but you know I, I this is like some of the first stuff i heard from them and so you know that always stuck out to me as you know being a little left of center even though it was still on the radio from you know say like acdc or the typical 4-4 rock that was out there yeah yeah and i think the interesting thing about spirit of radio is it's sort of an anti-radio song or an anti-sellout song and i think one of the cool things is part of the intention for this song was touring with kiss and seeing mm -hmm. what a marketing machine kiss was and listening to those lead singers every night who said the same thing in every town selling to those people and so that one you know of salesman when he yells that that's what he's talking about you know mm -hmm. um, glittering prizes and endless compromises shatters the illusion of integrity i mean what a great line that is um 
but it's funny that a song that kind of rails against that became their most popular radio song at the time. And very funny considering they toured with Kiss in the seventies. Yeah, that's where. Yeah, that's where he got that. They he saw yeah. that and he was like, "That's not what we want to be," you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so kind of cool. Well, I, I took the beginning of that uh, to be pro radio and pro, you know, music for the sake, of, you know, kind of a wholesome vibe, and then it, it switches. And it does get into the capitalistic, the uh, commercial, the line about the words of the prophets, mm -hmm. you know, pun, pun intended, written on the studio wall that Simon and Garfunkel, one of their biggest tunes. And, and uh, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's funny that you say that about Kiss, the ultimate cash machine, the band that's, I've heard tell that Kiss, is it true about the makeup that they, they wore makeup because they could switch musicians at a moment's notice and, and that way it was easy to teach people the song. So if you had to ditch a guy, Kiss could go on, but the, the you know, the machine could go on, but you could kick whoever out. I've heard that. I don't know if that's true or not. Rock and roll legend. Um, Interesting. I, I, that's so funny because if you listen to classic rock radio, of course, classic rock radio, I'm afraid boys include some of the bands that we talk about a lot on here that we grew up with. So um when you listen to traditional classic rock radio, you have a band like Kiss butted up against a band like Rush. And and if we really pay attention, I've always kind of wondered, you know, how Rush broke down the barrier for the average music fan when you have a, a, a long set list at lunchtime of, you know, Fog Hat, Kiss, you know, and all these kind of like three chords in the truth, kind of ham fisted, you know, just power rock stadium stuff. And then you get that rush. It's a little bit more cerebral, not to say that the average, you know, music fan doesn't get rush or something like that, but it's just funny to see those two juxtaposed against one another. And I, I, I imagine that that tour was probably a lot of fun to see the crowd because I've seen kiss folks and I know rush folks. So. Yeah. A buddy of mine, Actually, not to sound all name droppy, but he he and I did sales together. He was front of house and monitor mixer for that tour with Kiss and and Rush, and <clears throat> he's got some pretty fun stories. I'm I'm talking with him about coming on sometime and sharing some of those days with us, especially with Foggy being such a, a Rush mm -hmm. fan. He would definitely have some some cool things to share for sure at, at dinners you know he was always usually talking about crazy antics between him and and the crew and everything it took to get the the show running and and at, sometimes at the cost of a limousine for gene and that kind of thing <laughs> so <laughs> they're always butting heads but it was always you know <laughs> gene do you get the limo to leave on time or do you have a, a successful show pick one <laughs> yeah that'd be awesome if he'd come on yeah <laughs> Ironically, yeah. those two bands are very influential among musicians. I know a lot of people that will cite Kiss as musical influence. Of course, they're on a different level than Rush, but but uh, like we talked at the beginning, a lot of people will, will cite Rush. A lot of drummers will um, aspire to be Neil. But I also know a lot of guitar players and a lot of just songwriters because of Kiss's you know kind of blues basic rock format that they kind of grew up and cut their teeth on Kiss. So you know, it was mm -hmm. like the influence tour, I guess maybe I don't know. Yeah, and the memorabilia. There's a guy <laughs> yeah. I know that has a pinball machine, a Kiss pinball machine that was yeah. highly coveted. <laughs> they had a serious hook there. I mean, the whole package. So, yep. but getting back to what you said, Joe, I wonder if when you talk about the popularity of Rush, I wonder if it was the fact that they had this record, which became radio friendly, easier to digest, shorter songs, followed up in one year by probably their most popular song ever, and 
Minnie's favorite album, Moving Pictures. Um, I wonder if that, you know, that was just it and that cemented it for people. Yeah, could uh, be. I would think that's probably it, but uh, who knows? Noble back-to-back efforts that just kind of built the the hill, if you will, to ramp them up. <clears throat> that's a that's a good speculation. Hey, that means next year we get to do moving pictures for you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sweet. This gets better and better. <laughs> hey, what are you doing this time next year? See you back here, fellas. Yep. All right. So that brings us to Free Will, which was another hugely popular song off of this record. Um, I'm sure you both have heard that ad nauseum, right? Oh, yeah. At this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had a coworker that I did sound system installs with a lot, and we listened to usually whatever's on a radio station. But I remember Free Wheel coming on quite a bit on on Q ninety five, and so the mm-hmm. radio would get turned up a little bit. You know, he's a diehard Rush fan as well. Yeah. Um, Joe, any thoughts on Free Will? I'm looking through the um, actually just pulled the lyrics up here. It's like, oh my gosh, talk about. Uh, an entire semester of philosophy and (laughs) it's like whoa just mind blown Mm -hmm. um i don't know i i know i'm I'm not the biggest rush fan if i had to choose a favorite song this album i will choose free will (laughs) but boom (laughs) so why is that your favorite uh, no it's a really good actually these these first two radio tunes are really good i think i think there are songs in this album that get so overshadowed yeah. By those two songs, it's almost not fair. That's dumb to say, but uh, when people talk about Rush, they certainly aren't talking about Jacob's Ladder and Natural Science, um, which to me are probably the, for me, they're my two favorite songs on this mm-hmm. record. Good uh, and that's not to take anything away from those other two because they are catchy and they are great songs and they're filled with substance, but. I think it, sometimes you just kind of love the uh, redhead stepchild, <laughs> which is natural <laughs> science, and uh, and that and that one live was fantastic. Yeah, it's such on a different record. tune from the from the first two. It's it's quite an evolution from track one to track six. Mm-hmm. Were you familiar with Jacob's Ladder? Uh, I'd heard it a time or two, but not much. You know, you're listening when you put the when you put this album on, you get the two, first two radio hits. You're like, all right, and you're into it. And then I don't know, Jacob Slaughter would we say is like eight minutes long. And a couple of minutes in, you're like, wait a minute, we're prog rocking now, aren't we? <laughs> we're back. It sneaks up on you, doesn't it? But by then you're you're in. So Yeah, it, it definitely has a little more of a, a classic tone to it too. You know, the, the guitar almost has kind of that sixties reverb tone going on with it. And you know, Neil's doing kind of a marchy snare bit with it and that kind of stuff when, when Jacob ladder kicks in and it's it's fun because they definitely will experiment and, and have contrast it's not like a lot of the metal records i cut my teeth on where it was just one constant tone pretty much right around the same tempo the whole time always extreme or anything like that there's breathing room there's space and you know you're talking about on free will I, you don't see anybody in country or pop these days using the word preordained in their lyrics but uh you know there's <laughs> definitely a lot of depth there as well so um revisiting that's been kind of a nice refreshing welcome um revisit if you will i'm using re 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 refreshing remastered <laughs> yeah oh there you go I love what you said, though, that it's marching, that drum beat is marching in when the clouds prepare for battle. 
I mean, when you put that package together, it visually is stimulating as much as it is orally, you know? Mm -hmm. um, orally, not orally, sorry. <laughs> That's a tough one to uh, differentiate, isn't it? But, I wasn't um, going to say anything, but you know, whatever you're into when you listen to Rush, I mean, geez. <laughs> How do you say orally, you know? It, it tickles the ear. How about that? There as well as you get to the visual. So, um, but I love that part, and I love the concept too of of Jacob's ladder with the the sun breaking through the clouds and all that. So very cool song. It definitely builds, like Joe said, it's got the prog rock elements, and uh, it's a it's a slow grower, but it gets in there, mm -hmm. and that it does. That <clears throat> it does. And then we get to Entre New, which is between us, and it's another radio style hit, mm -hmm. which I kind of wonder. You know, they didn't play this one live until in the 2000s. Oh, really? So I kind of wonder if it was not a track that they loved. I don't know. Um, I've never really dug into the history of it, but. That's interesting. It, it does have a synth bit in there, too. And I know that logistically it was really challenging to play the synth parts and the bass at the same time. I think he had to use some foot controls at times. And, you know, of course, would take a break from the bass to employ some key parts and stuff as well. But. Um, I can only imagine that, you know, trying to hash out some of those parts and getting them because everything they did in the studio had to be just right. Everything they did live also had to be just right. Yeah, they were very technical mm -hmm. for sure. Did you like Entre New, Joe? Yes, I did. I, and it's funny, it, it, you call it radio style. I think it is um, all technical and, and logistical questions aside. It's kind of a, it's kind of built for the live show. It's kind of a, a song it's got that hook that you can imagine everybody kind of singing along to and um yeah i like the tune yep and i can always tell a diehard rush fan when they came into the guitar store because you, you let's face it when somebody comes in they play guitar they're usually playing something that's top 40 and in the moment um you know, or enter sandman would pop on or stairway to heaven all the you know the, the gertrudis licks but every once in a while somebody would play that intro to entre new and it's like oh yeah you're a rush fan huh and that would kind of start the icebreaker conversation yeah very nice and then up is Different Strings, which uh, this was interesting because it was not lyrically written by Neil. Getty wrote it. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, and it, the interesting thing there is that Getty is pretty heady. <laughs> and those lyrics, I mean, they're not lyrics that you'd just be like, oh, Neil didn't write those. Those are flaw. You know, mm -hmm. I think there's some pretty much, uh, some pre pretty good depth in those lyrics. It, yeah, and, definitely. And I definitely like the, you know, not to get all studio-ish, but I like the guitar part at the beginning for sure as well. It's just got a nice, clean vibe. And you know, some of those parts are tough to transition between from chord A to chord B and get that nice, clean movement. And Alex always did that so well. Did you feel like it just fell off? What's that? The song. It feels like it builds and builds. And then in a Rush song, you expect that we're going to go all over the place, but we're going to kind of return to that, that theme that runs through. Mm -hmm. But this one, it just kind of builds and then boom, it's over. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. like it shouldn't quit you really fast. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it just kind of stays kind of even. You know what I mean? And, and in terms of you don't hear it really knocking your socks off, but it means, but it uh, maybe it was their little break from everything else. Like, especially if they're playing live, much like natural science. I don't think Getty plays bass for a while at the beginning of it. You know, it's probably a nice break for him to just sing while Alex takes the. The intro for a bit even as well that song is three minutes and 50 seconds 
it's certainly uh, long for today's radio standards, but it's you know definitely back then. It, it, <laughs> you know what threw me off though, and the you know when I first heard this is when it talks about coming to slay the dragon. I have images of Beowulf. Interesting. Uh, and and so I'm thinking, oh, Neil wrote that. It's got you know mm-hmm. historical text, mythology, and all that kind of stuff going on. And then it's like, oh, Getty wrote it. Wow. <laughs> Getty wanted to prove he can read too. <laughs> it, it is funny that lyrically it fits right in, especially after Jacob's Ladder. I mean, kind of fit the same kind of theme. It's funny you mentioned Beowulf because they all have kind of a mythological feel to them, which is a prog rock. Uh, you know, yep. put it on the prog rock bingo card. Um, it's there, so but it's a good tune, and that it doesn't all have to be. You know, that's the, that's the beauty of a band like Rush is that you can get. Four minutes, five minutes, seven minutes, nine minutes, and three minutes. You know, hey, we're Rush. We can do this. So keep the audience on their toes. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad that we're not doing the old drinking game when you bring up certain things anymore, because this this would be a, a <laughs> foggy, heavy round for sure. <laughs> yeah, any Rush mention would be a drink. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> you'd be toast. Not fair. Uh, <laughs> so the next song is Natural Science, and this is definitely my favorite song on the album and it just gets wildly overlooked by people who aren't big rush fans and that's kind of a shame because it has a message that rings true to today and it's it's musically as strong as anyone on the album it's nine minutes and 50 seconds so you're going to get the whole full prog rock rush experience the interesting thing is it started off as some weird sir gawain and the green knight which i wish i could see the notes for that when his initial lyrics came out, because I love that story. Uh, I remember studying that in college. So <laughs> I, I want to know where he was going with that before it turned into natural science. But uh, what'd you boys think? No, I mean, lyrically it, it's definitely profound in that it, you can apply it to a lot of present day situations, especially the, the most endangered species. The honest man will survive annihilation, forming a world state of integrity, sensitive, open and strong. And it's like in some of today's temperature or climate, if you will, it might be hopeful, you know, and, and wishful thinking. But I think really we're just riding a wave. And at the end of it, you'll kind of see how things unfold. El Ray. You see the theme of integrity again. It starts with Spirit of Radio. It ends with this this tune. Um, all that honesty. The word integrity comes up in in natural science. Uh, science like nature must also be tamed. Given the same state of integrity, it will surely surely service well. Art as expression, not as market campaigns, will still capture our imaginations. Well, you know, here we are, forty years later, still talking about it. You know, mm-hmm. so uh, that's that's kind of the the cornerstone that rush is built upon is musical integrity. And I know guys that seek to write interesting music and try to make every song sound different. Uh, and then that I know personally are as successful as rush, obviously. But uh, if that's your, if that's your theme, then permanent waves is a great little example of, of a great statement of who you are as a band. Mm, for sure. So. And, you know, let's look at some of the, the words you don't see in, in songs today. We, we have <laughs> micro, microcosmic planet. That, you don't hear that in any pop tunes. Um, in a spiral array. Uh, the word complex, even. Quantum leap. Uh, computerized clinic. That kind of thing. It's just, uh, it, it, I know I'm being silly here, but at, at the end of the day, I mean, like you read these verses and it's like you're getting a picture 
painted in front of you and you can much like when you're reading a book you visualize the story in front of you and, and that's what these lyrics do yeah. i did not get sir gawain and the green knight out of that though <laughs> so i'll have to that got totally racked <laughs> out of there but yeah i the the thing that i think is so cool is there's that element of um moving forward scientifically that that progress but pulling back restraining just because we can do it doesn't mean we should do it is good for us and i think this song kind of serves as a warning about that and then again pulling back to that integrity and um doing things that are right and true and uh, i i don't know i i just this is a worthy extension of some of those long pro like cygnus book one and two and and like 2112 and xanadu it just follows musically right in line with those and it's got such a great message so i love it he loves it <laughs> that he do and now he's talking in third person what have we done <laughs> uh look at you being all literary over there <sighs> that he do right. xanadu wait what all right so we don't need to go through track by track for all the live ones, but are there any uh, things that really jumped out of the live songs that you really dug that you really didn't like? I have one critical thing I'm going to tell you in a minute. So I know oh. shocking, isn't it? Joe, do you want to go first or do you want me to go? I appreciated a couple of times. I'll go first. I suppose yeah. uh, I appreciated a couple of times when uh, there were some breakdowns and the crowd response. I thought, yeah. absolutely, I loved yeah. it. I, I don't remember that there were two songs that they did that on, but um, <laughs> that was like, here, yeah, here they yeah. come. Da -da -da. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that's a lot of fun. I appreciate that. That's, you know, I dug that. I dug the heck out of that. I also liked, um, I don't think always, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think that Getty's bass as a lead instrument always comes through on the studio and especially his radio tunes. I don't think you, uh, the average Rush fan, which I would consider myself, doesn't pay as much attention to his skill um, mm -hmm. because Alex and Neil are always, you know, sort of in the <clears throat> limelight. And uh, but I think. <laughs> I think Getty's voice is his instrument, and I think his bass gets a little bit maybe overshadowed, takes a backseat at times. But the live tracks brought that forward. Not only the interesting tones that he used, that you know you can you can make a bass a little bit more of a lead instrument by choosing some tones that that clean it up a little bit, make it a little bit more snappy. Uh, you're not just laying down the low end at that point. But I really enjoyed listening to Getty Lee play the bass as a lead instrument in the live setting. So that, that jumped out to me. You know, it's interesting when you mention that, uh, when they play beneath between and behind Getty had no influence on the song. He didn't write any of the music or the lyrics or anything on that song, but the bass is so pronounced that groove that they lay down at the beginning, mm -hmm. which is interesting that he didn't have any part in writing that. And yet it's so pronounced because it comes through very clearly in the live rendition. Right. Yeah, I, you know, I will admit that I struggle a lot of times listening to live albums or, you know, live tracks because you know, when you're there in person, it, it hits you differently than hearing a, a mastered version of what was going on live because, of course, the guitars aren't doctored for the studio, the drums aren't as well, and the vocals are not always going to be up to par as when they spent hours on a take and that sort of thing. But, you know, I, I'm not 
trying to say that they're terrible live or anything like that. It's just always a little bit of a different environment. Things are a little more muddy and disjunct at times. But the thing that makes this stand out for me was that, you know, what you're listening for is just how well rehearsed they were and how they pulled everything together and, and translated what was on the album in a live fashion. There's some bands that believe in, okay, we record it, we reinterpret it live, we'll do something to change it up and fans eat that up. Or in this case, Rush, they deliver a product and people want to see that recreated and say, how did they pull it off? I've got to know that kind of thing. At least that's how I perceived it. And a lot of my friends, when I talked about their live performances, that's kind of the same consensus. The thing that also that kind of cracked me up was, you know, you go see Tool play and Maynard really isn't introing songs in between or talking. It's just kind of a sonic art performance and people mm-hmm. knew what was happening right there as as things, you know, hit the note hits and that kind of thing. And, you know, Getty's introing the songs and stuff. And it's like it makes me wonder, like, how how uh, far into tour and how established were they with these songs that he was still introing them? Or was it, you know, just kind of a the habit of how he did things live because i think they could certainly surprise the crowd and just kick off a song and and oh i didn't expect this one and that kind of thing but um it's just funny to hear you know he seems very humble and this next song is spirit of radio that kind of thing and you know think if they just started playing the passage that they would have just eaten it up either way yeah well they were only six years in at this point i had that in my notes as well that you never, you were never lost uh, as to what album the song came from and what song they were about to play. So <laughs> I, I appreciated several of these live albums had had Getty Lee intros with full album title and full song title. So sorry, my daughter was saying good night there. And that might have been more consistent with what went on at the time as well, um, because every one of those. I think I didn't even look to see when they were recorded on every single one. I assume they were recorded at the time since they were all songs that happened before this album came out. And it, I guess here it just says where they were recorded. So mm-hmm. I assume they were in the past. Yeah. It makes sense if it was you know, recorded at the time that album came out and then they're just turning fans onto it and stuff that maybe the, somebody bought the album prior, but hadn't heard this one yet or something. And uh, we better tell them this one's the spirit of radio. It was funny because I I had to re-listen when he uh, introduced um, Vitor and the Snow Dog. It sounded like he said Snow Nog. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there were a couple of moments where he was a little nasally at the beginning of things. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure what that was all about. Um, And I'll just say that was my one critical thing was at the beginning of Xanadu. His voice Mm -hmm. was very nasally, which I've never heard before. And Xanadu is definitely one of my top two favorites. And the first time I saw him back in the mid eighties, they played Xanadu and it was freaking amazing. And that, at that point that was cemented as one of my favorite songs that be, you know, then I went, then I have to go down the rabbit hole and dig up Samuel Taylor Coleridge and Iron Maiden had done uh rhyme of the ancient Mariner. So like I'm down that rabbit hole, you know, and I'm just super excited about that song. And um, then to hear it here, I didn't think this rendition uh, vocally was as good as what I had heard before. Instrumentally, it was fantastic. It, it always is. But I really wanted more from Xanadu on this particular record. So that is my only critical comment about the entire thing. Funny. Yeah, and it could have been that he was having a rough night when they recorded, they played that night or something. You know what I mean? And uh, 
gosh, I mean, I I get through a 45 minute set where I'm just playing a bass and I'm tired, you know, filling in with a buddy or whatever. But to spend a whole evening entertaining a large crowd of people and having to deliver it at high range, that's a lot of pressure. And I certainly commend Getty for for pulling it off the way he did. And you got to give him some grace if he's having a hard time some nights because, I mean, I know his voice accommodates that range better than mine ever could, but it's got to be taxing <laughs> either way. Yeah. Uh, Joe, you had mentioned Vitor and the Snow Dog <laughs> in our tech stream at one point. And the interesting thing about that one is it's shorter live than it is on the album. And typically they play it as part of a medley. So it's just interesting. I don't, I'm not sure. I've never really looked up why they play it shorter than they do on the album, but I'm going to check that out. What, what did you like it? I, I think it's a badass song. Yeah, I think it's really cool. But this, it, it was kind of a, did it break uh, between Xanadu or did it go right into Xanadu on the album? I'm trying to remember if there was it a went, solid break. In the two. It went into Xanadu. Yeah. Yeah. It was almost like the medley, but yeah. Yeah. It was, a, it was kind of a mini medley, but still that's, I, I think it's a cool tune. And, and uh, before you know it, um, you're listening to Xanadu <laughs> and, and away you go. So it's yep. a cool, that's 17 minutes of the live stuff, the five plus 12 about 18 minutes so yeah totally totally i think that captures that that's that's a good primer you know i've never seen rush live um that, that may be a good live primer i know that you said there's some maybe some vocal stuff in there but uh musically that's a, that's a i think a good introduction a good portfolio i would say if i want to point somebody to what do they sound like live maybe that's a uh what you can expect they're so clean live like tool mm -hmm. they're mm -hmm. very clean in the way they play their instruments live and it sounds a lot like the albums do just with more energy yeah and you know you're speaking of the song length and being being part of a medley initially too it's funny how if you've seen a band a few times live how the set will change or how something's remained very consistent and it, it could have been something where where certain portions of the tune just weren't gelling. They couldn't translate it live like they did in the studio. And they just had to, all right, we got to get creative. This is still got to be something that, you know, the crowd wants, but how do we make it work? And so they had to kind of create a happy medium or something like that. Of course, I'm speculating, but I have seen that before. Um, or they could have just said, you know what? I'm so tired of playing that riff. Let's just kind of cut it in half and let's add it to Xanadu and call it a day, you know, whatever the, the scenario <laughs> is. I mean, there's got to be a rhyme and reason as to you know those decisions they didn't just have probably land on a happenstance or they were trying to fit a certain number of songs in and you know they didn't want to go four hours so they kind of cut and yep. piece them together maybe i don't know mm -hmm. lots of different ways it could play out for sure but uh, given that it's rush i i think that they certainly strive for perfection and if they didn't feel like something was working they would they would adjust yeah so what did you guys think of Cygnus book one and two. I don't know if you know, but they come on different albums. So one is the last song on a farewell to Kings and the other one's first song on hemispheres um, and hemispheres being the key word when you're listening to these two songs. Uh, what do you think about them live? Joe, you got thoughts or do I have to give my thoughts? Oh, oh Joe's got thoughts. Go for it. <laughs> think, think, Joe, think. Come on, Joseph. You're the king. Yeah, I I think they translated. They're pretty cool live. Um, I, I didn't have. I, I was actually more interested in the stuff 
before that we've already kind of mentioned. Um, but Cygnus was cool. I was trying to say, are they were they played in the same set? So they played them together. Yes, I was actually kind of researching on the fly. So okay, so that would have been a cool experience, I think, for a Rush fan to catch that um, those two songs together. Am I wrong about that, or is that no? Because they played you know the entirety of Twenty One Twelve. Because that's the experience is to get them together. Because one is the first part, you know, you know, book one, we're going on the journey and we're going into the black hole. And then number two, then we we put all the pieces together. So seeing hearing them together is a, yeah, a great experience. It'd be a treat. Them. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's go. sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say it's you know for somebody who's a casual fan, something like this would be a, a tough bite to chew. You know, it's it's not a song that's easy breezy. Let's just get in there and listen to. I mean, we're talking about, you know, we're using Olympus or you know, the gods, and we're using Rocinante, the horse from Zeus, and Don Quixote. Okay, I mean that's the name of the ship this guy's flying in, and we're using Dionysus. We're using Apollo, um, and we're using. Two parts of your brain. We're using reason and love, and you know the head and the heart, and you know we're kind of putting these two together. So it's really heady, and it's a lot to manage. So coming into this, if you're not wanting to dig into the lyrics, you're just listening to get the feel of it. It's it's difficult. I I could see why that would be a challenge for people who don't necessarily love Rush. Why do I want to put that much effort into listening to a song? But you do, and then you get a great payoff. Mm-hmm. So. I think it's interesting, especially with part one, how there's a lot of soundscape going on at the beginning. It's not necessarily going in and just knock your socks off. And by that time when that came out, I should say in, in retrospect, it's it's interesting because the audience would still latch onto it better than they would today, you know, because they don't have they did not have at that time the interactive presentation that bands do today. They didn't have the large screens with visuals going mm-hmm. on. Um, you know, it was just the band and maybe a light show, but certainly no other rich visuals. And I know that their stage presence evolved through the years. One of my buddies was telling me about a time that he went and there were washing machines and dryers on yes. all over the stage. And yeah. they actually had clothes that they were handing out, thrown out or whatever that were from mm-hmm. like tour shirts and stuff, which is cool. And uh, I think um, Joe Flaherty from SCTV, did the vampire from SCTV one time was on screen for one of their tours and stuff too. So they definitely played that interactive role and, and kept the crowd engaged in, in that aspect. So I would just, if I were a fly on the wall back then, just to see how the crowd zoned out or stayed engaged during moments like that, it would be fascinating to see. But when it kicked in the part two, you know, it was definitely a lot more right out of the gate and uh, Getty's bass tone in both of them was just fantastic. I really liked the harmonic pieces that were going on with with the bass tone it had a lot of bite to it and um kind of like what joe was saying earlier when he was doing the lead roles and stuff too but um getty is a busy bass player and, and he sings on top of it too so uh just to hear him really stand out and shine in those moments was really fun to to listen to i could see myself wanting to you know really vibe out and jam with a band on grooves mm-hmm. like that especially on part two there were some definitely fun moments to just you would just want to loop and throw down it's really kind of funny. You you did nail exactly not that I didn't want to dig in to it, but there was a lot here. I mean, I'm I'm listening to you know the entire album, six tunes, and there's a lot to work with there just with the studio stuff. So then I dig in to the live stuff 
and you know i'm getting used to rush as the live group and i'm 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 listening lyrics i'm listening guitar tones i'm listening drum parts oh my gosh now he's playing bells now he's playing a xylophone now he's you know it's like they're all over the place they're so interesting uh there there is a lot going on and you know sometimes we do these reviews and we uh, we're up against time we have to get together and talk about them and we only have a couple of days so you know at some point it's like you you have to you have to put it in the can you have to say all right it's time to, time to sit down and talk about it and i found myself with some of the albums that we've reviewed in the past um I've went back and listened to him after we've done the show and I've, I've picked up on things and I, oh, I would have loved to talk about that. I just, but, but that's the great thing about a band uh, like rush is that, that each spin gets a, a different layer that stands out to you. And each situation, whether you're sitting out at night, uh, I think it's, it, does Monday talk about putting them on before he goes to bed or, or as he lays down, um, you know, so you got a headphone situation there, maybe in the car. Uh, it, it's really cool. And I'm sure I'll do this again with permanent waves and I'll, I'll dig back in and find elements that uh, I'll, I'll think, damn, I wish I would have talked about that the other night. So um, that's exactly where I got. Not that I didn't want to put the effort into it, but I was just uh, drinking from the fire hose at that point, you know, so you <laughs> try trying to catch something. Yeah. You know, Paul, you said something really interesting and you For had lunch. mentioned I, Joe make a note. May 31st, 2020, Paul said something interesting. <laughs> it's in the diary. That in the show, uh, uh, the, the, <laughs> the notes to the, to the, to the, uh, yeah. So, well, you'd mentioned the, you know, not having the screens mm -hmm. and all that to kind of help tell the story and everything. But, you know, the cool thing is when we were growing up, we didn't have that, but we had vinyls and really cool inserts mm -hmm. and we would put that music on and we'd lay on the bed and we'd spread it all out in front of us and we would le you know read the lyrics and we would study those i bet you people at that time that went to those concerts didn't need anything because mm -hmm. they knew those words by heart they studied them and they were totally immersed in that music and that's kind of a cool thing that happened pre digital everything Mm -hmm. pre-visual feast you have to show me everything you know there was some work requ required when we were kids and i think we got a great payoff back then and i know for me this was my first real entry into rush i was nine years old my brother bought it um and we had great stereo equipment so i loved it and then the next year we got to, uh moving pictures and then it was on you know what i mean mm -hmm. and so then i got to go back and do the other stuff i clearly was not old enough to handle <laughs> caressive steel <laughs> when i was three or four you know what i mean yeah. so uh but i have so you know fond memories of those early records that uh you know with this one and, and moving pictures so i can't wait you know, I'm counting down right now from a year from now when we're doing moving pictures. It is on, people. We got to get <laughs> after it. <laughs> so we will, uh, let's roundtable it. Final thoughts, grade. What do you think, JPP? I'm going to give it a four and a half because it's Rush for one. But I think the coolest thing about this was I revisited something that I hadn't heard in a while. And just, I know you've talked about Rush all the time. So just kind of hearing your experience on your growth to fandom is, is awesome as well. I, I didn't have anybody. I was the youngest sibling and most of my siblings were already out of the house by that time. And when I was getting into music and so I really didn't have anybody to 
give me music to listen to. I usually I hear my sister stuff in her room. It's like, oh great, here goes Bon Jovi, uh, here's Journey, <laughs> that kind of thing. So I was usually you know running away at that point. But um, I remember my brother bringing Iron Maiden over, and that was a different story. But you know, nonetheless, it's it's awesome to hear you know what what turned you on to them and how how you came to be the diehard Rush fan that you are. Um, I would say that you know, listening to the original six before the Friday release was, you know, refreshing and, and that, you know, I, I hadn't listened to these songs in a while and then to hear the live tunes, you know, I will admit that first I was like, Oh man, I have a hard time hearing live, but you just heard the musicianship and everything really translated well. And the crowd noise wasn't overbearing or a problem when you're listening to the live part of it. So it was just nice to kind of dissect and, and hear them in that moment nailing everything in time instead of relying on studio to put everything down perf- you know, perfectly. But, but I'll definitely go back and listen to this again. I'm going to probably go through and, and revisit a lot of the discography on Spotify and probably even look for some stuff on YouTube to see some live footage and things like that as well. So if you do have some links that you think I should go visit, share away, I'll, I'll do some homework on it. Very cool. Joseph. I'm going to give it a 4.25. It helped me to understand Rush. I used to really not like Rush. I'll be honest. This was years ago, um, but I didn't get them. And I, you know, I, I needed, as I became more and more interested in music, um, I'm talking years ago when I was nine, I didn't listen to Rush. So I was not on Steve's level, but um, that's about the time I didn't understand them. Because uh, you grew up with classic rock radio, and that's what was on there most of the time. And I, I didn't get it, but now I've kind of grown into it. And as I became a musician myself, I thought, you know, I really need to kind of at least know why these guys talk about Rush. This album had enough, I think, to keep you um, interested if you're a casual fan. And if you wanted to put forth the effort to dig a little deeper below the surface, uh, live experiences are always good for that, I think, um, without the commitment of paying 100 and 50 bucks and giving up two or three hours of your evening. Um, you know, this, this is the beauty of the live album. So, um, yeah, it had enough to keep me interested, but then also enough to tempt me to get in a little deeper. And I, I've really appreciated the, just the literary quality of everything. And, and I, I've, I think I finally can say that I, I truly appreciate the musicianship of these guys and how they played as a band, um, and how they wrote their tunes. And, uh, it's a solid listen. And like I said, I'll keep, I'll keep digging because when I see a, uh, you know, piece that's, I don't want to say operatic, but you know, it's, it's, it's got a lot of moving parts like Cygnus. I think it's worth looking into and, and studying up on. So that's my next, my next challenge for myself, my homework. Sweet. Uh, Foggy, sing it with me. Then we saw his face. Now Joe's a believer. <laughs> don't say he's a believer. No, we don't want any of those around here. Although he's from Canada too, so he can't be all bad. Oh, no way. eh? Uh, (laughs) I kind of feel like I want to call Paul. I want to call Chris Thomas and tell him, Hey bud, I'm sorry. I don't, I didn't get it, but I think I do. (laughs) Yeah. And one other point I wanted to bring home tooth points, actually, you were saying that you're an album listener, not a playlist listener. And, that's been kind of the ongoing theme the past couple of reviews we had. We listened to AWOL Nation, and that seems like a playlist-heavy album. You know, it's not something that could, that I could listen to front to back because it seemed like it went all over the place. We had Fiona Apple. That was definitely an album listen. Then we had right. 
um, Mark Lanigan, an album listen, and then Beauty mm-hmm. and Chaos, even an album listen. And you, you, you can still take songs out and listen to them on their own, but that's kind of the beauty of some of this music that we've been listening to is it's, it's a whole theme. It's a whole package. It's a whole vibe. And you really lose out on that. If you don't give that whole album a chance. And, you know, even with some of the today's modern tunes, they, they want to, they want to satisfy a lot of different little pockets of music, musical taste. And, you know, either they're scratching their own itch or even the fan base too, at the same time. So it's nice that there's been just some albums where, the attention span is all right. Look, I need to sit down and just listen to this. You know, I this is the moment I need for this whole thing, and it's it's been good. It's it's relaxing. You know what I mean? So, I'm I'm uh, looking forward to more music like that in the future. I just love when an artist or you know a band or whatever can put out a big piece like this that is a complete package that is. You know the whole album is just a treat. It's a it's a thematic piece of art that you can really dig into, and you can see it on different levels. You can just sit back and enjoy it, or you can dig in and you find you know little gems hidden within there. And so that's what I always get with Rush. And you know I don't want to be cool. I want to be a Rush fan. You know because <laughs> seriously, there's like a there is the nerdy quality there. You know there is the mythology. Maybe it's not that cool to to look into mythology and know it and care about it, but it's there and they use it and they recreate it into something new that we can enjoy today. And I totally respect that. And I love that part about them. Uh, this, like I said, was really my entry into Rush. This has a special place in my heart. I listen now and it's funny. That I've, I've, I can't even tell you how many hundreds of times I've listened to this record, but this week I did so much work outside so I could listen. I took a lot of trips in my car to do things so I could listen. I, I don't even know how many times I listened to the entire thing this week, but it was a lot. And uh, just love it. Uh, respect everything that they do. I miss Neil. Uh, I wish he were around today. He was such a treasure for mm-hmm. everyone. And uh, And I'm not just talking about his drum playing, but his heart. Um, and you know, it's really cool because, you know, th- a lot of this initial stuff came from Ayn Rand, right? I mean, he was a big follower of that, the, the power of the spirit of the individual and finding your spirit or whatever. But as time went on, you know, he realized that it's not all about the individual, you know, and it's about you and your community and your, your larger place in life. And I love that, that somebody that smart, that well-read can change and grow just as his music did. And I love that in those early records, he had long songs that were, you know, 2112. It was a huge 21 minute song or whatever it was. And, and uh, Cygnus book one and two are super long, but later on he evolved and changed and wrote an entire record. that was like that, but every song was an individual song collected this whole theme and told a story rather than just one song. It was kind of an interesting way that he switched. So there just isn't anything that I don't love about this band. So I'm going to give this record a 5.0 out of five. You know, I never get fives. Well, there's a couple, but (laughs) this is one of those fives. So I can't wait until next year because I'm just spoiler warning. Moving pictures is a five. (laughs) (laughs) I did not see that coming. Okay, Spoiler warning, uh, <laughs> Tom Sawyer is not one of my top 25 favorite Rush songs. So there, how about that? 
That'll yeah. surprise you. That's awesome. And how cool is it that we're reviewing this album the weekend that SpaceX Dragon launched two men up to the space station too? You know, mm-hmm. you know, speaking of Cygnus and yeah, Interstellar and all that good stuff. So that's uh, timeliness is is key in this moment. It is very cool, and I thank you guys for allowing me to do the Rush episode with you guys. And um, <laughs> I'm going to beg next year, or I'm going to do it on my own. I don't care. <laughs> that's how we do it. It wasn't hard so. to twist my arm, that's for sure. So we'll be there. Fantastic. All right. Well, next week there will not be an album review and there will not be an official challenge and there will be no Lester Bangs inspired challenge because we are welcoming back Michael Cerevolo to talk about the storm before the calm. This follow up to Calm Before the Storm. And uh, we can't wait to talk to him. And uh, Mr. L. Ray, where can we find you on social media? <clears throat> I'm an over on Instagram. L. Ray 4 is the handle. E-L-R-E-Y. And numeral 4. Say hello there. Hello. <laughs> JPB. <laughs> you can find me on Instagram under just plain Paul, all one word. You can also find me at the Facebook page at Wanderings and Wool Gathering. It, there's some, uh, definitely some dust bunnies collecting there. I need to get busy and get back on there. but. Uh, Feel free, to, feel free to drop a note, comment, all that good stuff. You can find links to our show on various platforms there as well. Excellent. And I am Foggy's Pal. You can find me at Twitter and Instagram. You can also find me at BreakTheFourth.com. And you can find Wanderings and Wool Gathering at Rock985.com or on SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and Cashbox. And I believe if you check any of us out on Instagram, you will find in our bios a link to the show. So I hope everybody has a great time with this episode. I know I did. And until I see you again next week, or you hear me again next week, we'll see you then. Bye now. <laughs>